Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who are new to Trailhead Church, my name is Brian, and I'm an elder candidate here at Trailhead Church. And it's my honor this morning to open the word with you all as Aaron and Steve are out of the pulpit. Uh, we're continuing in our series. We're, we're looking at uh, effectively Jesus' teachings, uh, dealing with uh, a whole host of issues. But this morning, we find ourselves dealing with the topic of anxiety. And our sermon is titled, The False Hope of Anxiety, which is an interesting sermon title. We'll unpack that as we get through this. But one of the things that is pretty much a, a truism of most people is you've at some point been anxious. In fact, some of us are continually dealing with anxiety. And uh, <clears throat> if that's you this morning, if you're coming in and you're like, yeah, Brian, that's me, I've got my anxious card. Uh, I want you to know that you're not alone and that you're in good company, uh, for I am well acquainted with fear and worry. In fact, it's odd having to give a sermon <clears throat> on anxiety produced no, no small amount of anxiety in my own heart, just dealing with the text and dealing with its implications for me and, and also knowing the process that normally happens when you're preaching a text. Uh, there's a lab and a lesson, and normally the Lord gives you the lab before you can teach the lesson. And so there's no small amount of anxiety this week in the Pacheco household. And so what I'm going to share with you today is actually really helpful for me as well and things that the Lord has been teaching me, uh, not just throughout this week, but truly throughout my life. So if you've had seasons <clears throat> of tremendous anxiety, and on more than one occasion I've had that pleasure of reaching the end of myself and only to find that there's more required, then I, I want you to listen closely this morning. See, the, the hope that Jesus shares with us is a hope that is true and sure. It's true and it is sure. But if that's not you this morning, let's say you're coming in and you're, you're riding the highs of success and, and everything's going well, then you're probably going to want to take some notes. Because one certainty you have in this world is that hardship will come. And it tends to come, it usually comes when we least expect it. Or when we least are capable of getting through it. So in preparation for this, I want to share with you one of the greatest struggles of my life. It came in the fall of 2019. It was a season like no other. And for those of you that walked through that season with me, you understand. Uh, but that's not the story I'm going to look at. In fact, I'm going to look at the preamble to that fall of 19 story. It's August of 19, and, and it takes place when Mia, our third-born daughter, was only six weeks old. Now, to set the stage, when your baby has a fever, you call the doctor, right? Like, that's the first step. You call the doctor, you make sure everything's okay, and, and likely what they're going to do is ask some questions and make sure the temperature is within a, a certain range, give you some helpful tips, and then suggest you call them back in the day or so to make sure the, the fever hasn't persisted. But if you call your doctor and your baby is less than three months, then what you're normally going to be told is to go and take the baby immediately to the ER. And if you've ever been in that situation, you've ever been in that situation where the doctor on the phone says, you need to go to the ER now. As a parent, you've just reached a whole new level of worry and fear. And so Mia was six weeks old at the time, and she comes down with this fever, and we call, and, and that's what they tell us. And add to that, Melinda at the same time was diagnosed with strep, and it was basically just this kind of two-for-one deal. And uh, so that gives you a bit of the level of chaos that was happening in our home as we're trying to deal with this. And, and so long story short, we end up at Children's Hospital, and, and we get Mia set up, and, and she's not looking great, and, and we're not looking great, and the doctors agree no one's looking great at this point. We're all pretty tired. We're all pretty distressed. And they leave, and they discuss with themselves for a while, and then they come back, and the, and the whole 
mood of the room changes. And they look at Melinda and I, and they, <clears throat> they say, uh, we don't know what your daughter has. But, but to rule out the really nasty things, to, to make sure, uh, we, we recommend she receive a spinal tap. Now, a spinal tap, for those of you who don't know, as I didn't know, I just knew it was a movie name, is where they stick a needle in the lumbar region of your child's back, and, and what they're trying to do is collect the fluid around the spinal cord. They're, they're doing this because they're wanting to rule out things like meningitis and, and, and things that could really take down a kid pretty quickly. Okay? But as a parent in that moment, you know, when your doctor comes in and, and that's the recommendation, you're feeling a wide variety of emotions, and, and guaranteed one of them is anxiety. Right? I mean, you're worried. You're worried about the life of your child, what's going on with them. You're, you're fearful of what they may have, what they may not have. You're, and, you're, and you're wondering the entire time, I'm not capable of making this decision. I am out of my depth. I'm out of my class. And yet at the same time, as the parent, the doctors are looking to you to give consent. They're, they're looking at you because you have to make the call. And so you find yourself totally at the end of your strength, totally at the end of you. And in that moment when anxiety grips your heart and grips your mind, what do you do? What do we do? What, what can we do? If you're like me, or if you're like the Israels, Israelites of Jesus' day, then, then we recognize, we all recognize, there are times in this life that we struggle profoundly with anxiety. And for some of us, we struggle it, with it to a degree that quite frankly it is debilitating. It's constant, it's continual, it's every day. And it's easy to see why. We, we live in a world where kids get sick. That shouldn't be, but it happens. Where terrible illnesses strike the ones that we love. A world where people slander our good name for the sake of their own self-centered and self-ambition. A world where scarcity is real we have to look out for ourselves to provide for our family. A world where our opponents get the upper hand and show no sense of proportionality in their revenge. And in this world, what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we really called to live life without anxiety? Are we really called to live life without anxiety? Aren't there some moments where the appropriate emotion is anxiety, where the appropriate level to be human means being fearful and worried. I believe it's true, living in a fallen world around fallen and broken people and being fallen and broken people, each of us will encounter situations that cause us to become anxious. I think that's absolutely true. And Jesus knows this. See, he's not promising a life where fear and worry don't exist. Catch that. Jesus is not promising a life absent of fear and worry. He is, however, offering us a life that we're not controlled by fear and worry. A life in Christ is the power to respond to fear and worry without giving in to fear and worry. Now, if we're honest this morning, and I'll be honest with you, Sometimes we've grown so accustomed to giving in to our anxiety that it's no longer momentary. It's no longer a passing thing. It's, it's moved in. It's got a seat at the dinner table. It's, it's greeting us every morning. And, and if you're there, you, you understand how draining that is. But here's the thing. The more we do this, the, the more we allow our minds and our hearts to be governed by fear and worry, the more chained we become to it. 
Now catch this now. No one would ever say, no one would ever say this, but, but how many of us live our lives as if anxiety were actually our hope? Now I know this sounds wild, but, but hear me out. Many of us act as though our anxiety could somehow change the course of our life. That by being anxious, we could somehow fix or change the situation we find ourselves in. And so we become more and more and more fixated on our anxiety, believing it will somehow fix the wrong we find ourselves in. And, and if you don't believe me, just look at what Jesus says in verse 27. He's, he spells this out for us. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Yet how many of us live as though it could? I think the Bible is true hope for us this morning. I believe that since God is faithful and able to provide for all of our needs, we must place our hope in him. And, and I know that sounds simple, but it's profoundly life-changing when that starts to happen. I believe we, we can't go to work, we can't place it in our money, we can't place it in our health, we can't place it in our anxiety, we can't place it in these things that actually can't provide. But the sure hope, which is Christ, I believe does and is the only thing that does. And, and I believe that we can do that for the needs of the day, which are the things we tend to be dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, but also the needs for the future. Because I think there's a lot of times where we're getting these patterns of worrying and worrying and worrying of what's going to happen 5, 10, 20 years down the road. And we have no control over any of it. So we're going to look at that this morning. What does it look like to place our hope in Christ for the needs of the day and the needs of the future? Verse 25 is our first point. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Okay, getting into our text this morning, it's not hard to see anxiety or anxiousness was on the hearts and minds of those in, those in the crowd. This is part of the reason why Jesus is addressing this. But the way he addresses it is a bit unusual. First, he, he's going to open with a challenging statement. Do not be anxious about your life. Right? Just kind of a bold statement, challenging the conceptions of those who were in the crowd. And second, he's going to highlight an example from nature, and we see this when he says, look at the birds, we'll kind of discuss that. What does that mean? And he's going to use this absurdity and exaggeration to drive home his point. Okay, and he's going to do this twice in this passage. And lastly, he's going to leave the crowd with a question. And this one says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And, and here's what he's doing. By, by leaving the crowd with a question, he's placing the decision for change in their hands. Okay, so let's go ahead and break this down and take a look. So Jesus gets the attention of the crowd. He tells them, do not be anxious about your life. And he goes to highlight two provisions, food and clothing. Now, these are examples of what people in that day would have often been worried about. What am I going to eat and what am I going to wear? Now, the word anxious in our text is translated from the Greek word meri manao. And all that means is that it's got several lexical meanings that I think are important for us to understand this morning. It can mean to, to care about oneself, okay? It can mean to be concerned about someone, or it can mean to be anxious for a situation. Again, Mary Manao, the word we translate anxious, can mean to care about oneself, to be concerned about someone, or to be anxious for a situation. 
And based on those definitions and then the example that Jesus provides, I think it's reasonable to suggest that we're primarily dealing with everyday worries and fears that have gotten out of hand, okay? So we're not dealing with the chaos stuff. We're not dealing with Mia in the ER. We're dealing with everyday worries, okay? Okay, they've gotten out of hand. They've been blown up to exaggerated proportions. And again, note the text. There's nothing wrong with responding to needs. But there's something very wrong when those needs begin to control us. And this seems to be the point Jesus is making. He's trying to shake up the crowd. He's, He's trying to get their attention. He's wanting them to see, and he's wanting us to see, that we're governed by our fears and worries far more than we tend to think, far more than we realize. And turning to verse 6, note the exaggerated example he uses from nature. Look at the birds of the air. He says, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now this illustration is purposely using exaggeration and absurdity to drive home the point. Everyone knows birds don't sow and they don't reap. That's what farmers do. And everyone knows birds don't gather into barns. Again, that's what farmers do, that's what people do. Yet how many of us don't realize that we're not in control for the needs of the day? Because that's what God does. Heading back to the children's hospital, a whole host of thoughts come into view when everything in your life kind of gets shaken and that illusion of control begins to break apart rather quickly when confronted with a need like the one facing my daughter Mia. And so that night as we talked about our choices and it was in the middle of the night because these things always happen in the middle of the night. Always. Stuff goes wrong, way, way wrong after midnight. Well, we decided to move forward with the spinal tap, which was one of the most difficult things as a father I've had to witness uh, with Mia. And I remember spending a, a tremendous amount of time in prayer for me. And I remember asking the Lord, would you please provide for her? Would you please heal her? Would you please make her well? But if I'm honest, uh, it was a very anxious prayer. It was a very anxious prayer. And one of the ways you can tell you have an anxious prayer is that you end the prayer by bartering with God, right? Ever had those prayers? See, I was asking God to place her troubles on me rather than on him, which in the moment seemed noble, but in reality, it was just my fear. It was pushing me to run to what I could do for her rather than trusting in him to do what only he could do. Now catch this, in thinking of what I could do for her, in praying those prayers with such ambition of of my ability, I I missed the greater invitation to walk with Jesus. I missed the greater invitation to trust in him, to cast my cares on him, to bring my fears to him. I was trying to barter the goods. And And just so we're clear, the invitation to walk with Jesus in hardship is not an easy thing. It's never an easy thing. It's not like one path is all roses and sunshine and the other is darkness and despair. Sometimes both paths are dark. Sometimes the paths you go through are a lot like walking through the valley of death. But here's the difference. The difference with Jesus is you don't walk it alone. You don't have to go alone. Come back to our text. When when Jesus says, in which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life. He's not looking for a nuanced response. Everyone knows the answer to this question. That's the point. And it leaves us, it leaves the hearer with a choice. Are we going to continue to place our hope in things that can't possibly provide? We're going to continue to focus on our need. 
Or will we trust that the God who provides for the daily needs of the birds will provide for the daily needs of those who hope in him? And I would say, seeing as God is faithful and able to provide for each of our needs, we must place our hope in him and not our anxiety. Anxiousness comes, and when anxiousness comes, what it should do is it should cause our eyes to go back onto Jesus. It should cause our hearts to go back onto Jesus to recognize we're not in control of this situation, but we know who is. And again, I know that sounds simple, and I know it sounds easy, and I know it sounds like, well, that's a very, you know, kind of rudimentary answer, and it's like, but it's true. Anxiety will come, anxiousness will come, and what you do with it matters. And for many of us, we've grown accustomed to just running to ourselves and placing it in our own hearts and placing it in our own minds and our own heads. And I don't believe we were called to do that. But I don't think that's just for the needs of the day. I actually believe that's for the needs of the future. And I think for the needs of the future, it tends to be even more compounded because oftentimes what happens is we get into our minds, this is how life is always going to be. Especially if you're walking through a difficult season where you're not sure how you're going to make it through day to day, you start you know, projecting that out six, seven weeks, six, seven years. And it can absolutely break you down. Which is why I think it's helpful. We place our hope in him not just for the, the needs of the day, but for the needs of the future. Okay, verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus starts with this intention getter, basically by asking and telling the crowd, why are you anxious about clothing? (laughs) Which is a profound question. Why are you anxious about clothing? Now, that word anxious, again, is the same word used in verse 25, which means, based on our prior definitions, I think it's reasonable to suggest we're still dealing with everyday worries and fears that have become exaggerated, okay? We started looking at the need rather than looking at the giver of the need. And again, note, there's nothing wrong with responding to needs, something very wrong when those needs begin to control us. And so the second part of verse 28, he gives this exaggerated example. He says, consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, everyone knows the answer to this. Yes, lilies don't toil or spin. That's what a tailor does. That's what someone who makes clothing does. And everyone also knew, especially for an Israelite, that King Solomon, who reigned during the zenith of Israel's power, was as well-dressed as any Israelite could have ever hoped to have been. Yet even his wardrobe, catch this, even his wardrobe in all of its splendor paled in comparison to flowers clothed by God. Catch this now. How many of us believe our provision is better than God's? Trusting in our ability to provide rather than his ability to sustain. And this is where we have to know there's a rebuke in our passage today. The phrase, O you of little faith is a rebuke. It's used three times, three more times in the Gospel of Matthew, and in every instance, it's used to describe the disciples, their heart, highlighting their failure to believe that Jesus will actually care for them. So it's a rebuke and an invitation, but it's a rebuke to say, 
Why do you have so little faith that I have you? And an invitation to come in. I, I think we need to pause at this rebuke. It's, it's easy to mentally agree with what we're reading this morning, especially if you're a believer. It's, it's very easy to agree with it and then miss the greater invitation to trust. It's so easy to think that, you know, this is a really helpful sermon for, for someone else, but I've got my stuff together. It's, we we kind of close ourselves off to the invitation he has. And I don't want us to do this morning. I believe verse 33 is an invitation to all of us, and I believe there is a promise there for those who seek it. Continuing with me, verse 31, it says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Now the verb shall in verse 31 uh, can be translated as will, so it's denoting a future event. So, so when Jesus expresses these statements, you could say, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? Highlighting that he's doing this from a position of someone who is worried about the future. They're worried about what's going to be. And from this, we can follow that, following verse 31, each of these verses, 32 and 33, are speaking to the way, speaking to two primary ways that people seek security and their life that speak to the primary ways that people prepare for the future. Now, there's the first way, and this is what Jesus says. He, he says. he says that this is what the Gentiles do. This is what the Gentiles seek after. The first way is that they seek after their needs. What does it mean to seek? Well, they, they focus. That becomes the primary thing they're looking at. They're looking at what they don't have. And as a result of this, anxiety fills them because you can never have enough. And once you get it, you're worried about losing it. You never reach a place where everything is perfectly secure, where all the pieces fit in all the right places. And this is actually where anxiety begins acting like our hope because anxiety pushes us. It, it gives us purpose, it gives us meaning, it gives us drive, it gives us charge. It allows us to endure. And so we begin this cycle of anxiety and seeking, anxiety and seeking, always striving but never being satisfied, always hoping but never being fulfilled. You know, when Jesus it, it uses the term Gentiles, we know from previous sermons, Gentiles were pagans. They, they didn't worship God. And since they didn't worship God, there was no means of provision from God, which meant if you're a Gentile and you wanted to survive, you had to be anxious. You had to be anxious. You had to fight your way, tooth and claw, to make sure you not only got what was your due, but you kept what you had. And yet, notice what Jesus says. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And just in case someone was wondering, God knows you have needs. He knows you have needs. God knows Food is in need because guess what? He designed you and he designed me. He knows water's in need. He knows clothing's in need. He knows relationships are in need. He knows communities in need. He knows all of these things because he's designed you. The question is not one of needs. The question is one of seeking. Will you content yourself to be seeking after the needs, to focus on the needs, to make that the goal? Or will you seek 
the one who supplies for every need. The question is where we place our eyes. The question is where we place our focus. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you, he's dealing in the realm of real needs and real struggles. And his invitation is not one of rainbows and sunshine. It's not one of mythical fairy tale land or mythical talk. He's offering security that never fades. He's offering hope that never dies because it's him. It's on him. You don't lose Jesus. You can't. And the question is, will we continue to place our hope and our provision for the future? Or will we trust that the God who provides for the flowers will provide for those who hope in him? And seeing as God is faithful and able to provide all that we need, we must place our hope in him, not in our anxiety for the needs of the day and not in our provision for the needs of tomorrow. Okay, so, so how do we do this? <laughs> how do we do this, Brian? I'm with you. I, I, I've got an anxious heart. I don't want to be filled with anxiety anymore. I'd like to be beyond this. I'd like to move beyond this. I'd like to have freedom in this. But how do I trust God for the needs of the day? How do I trust him for the needs of tomorrow? There's a lot of things going wrong. Stuff's falling apart. Brokenness all around. How do we practically find hope in him? when if we're honest, fear and worry drive so much of what we do. Now, pushing pause, I, I know many of us are riddled with anxiety. I know that it can even be a struggle just to focus on the day, to be present with people. Right? It can be a struggle to hope for the best at times, and it can be a struggle to not be preoccupied with the worst. And we're coming off of a year where it was kind of the worst in a lot of ways. And so I know we're struggling with anxious hearts. And so if that is you, I'm glad you came today because I believe the Bible does offer us hope and I believe it's far better than anything you or I could come up with on our own. I, I believe that. I believe that. And so by means of application, what I'm going to do is I want to draw us to the occurrence that happened with Peter and Jesus. Peter was a disciple of Jesus Christ and, and I want to look at Peter because he, he was a man like you and I. He, he struggled with anxiety. A lot like you and me. And, and yet he was also a guy who wanted to trust God. He wanted to be freed from this. He wanted to be obedient unto the Lord, and, as many of you in this room want to do. And so I think we can glean a valuable principle from Peter, and I think we can learn a lot from his example. And so we're going to take a look at events surrounding Peter and Jesus in a meeting they had on the Sea of Galilee. Turn with me to Matthew 14, 22. I also have it on the screen, in case you don't have your Bible, but I'll give you a second to, to move there. Matthew 14, 22. And again, this is going to be a way that we answer that question of how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we not turn to our anxiety and make that our hope? How do we not turn to our provision and make that our hope? Verse 22, chapter 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Common for Jesus to do this. Guys, get in the boat. I'll dismiss the crowds. And then guess, guess what's going to happen? After he dismissed the, crowd, dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain to, to, by himself to pray. Another thing that happened often, when evening came, he was there alone. Jesus alone with God, spending some time in prayer. But the boat by this time, that is the disciples' boat, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch, that's late at night, he came to them 
Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water with you. And he said to Peter, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? There's a connection between these two passages. Did you catch it? O you of little faith. What is Jesus getting at here? So Jesus just spent some time with the Father. He's making his way to the boat where his disciples had been rowing all night. The wind was against them. The waves are against them. They're rowing. They're rowing. They're getting stuff going. And when he gets to the boat, we notice a few things. First, the disciples have real fear in their hearts, right? Because like you and me, they'd never seen a person walk on water. Hadn't happened in their lifetime. And when that did happen, reason went out the window because the Bible said they were terrified, right? They cried out in fear. We're dealing, one could say these men were filled with anxiety. I don't think that's too far of a stretch. Now, in this state of fear, we see Peter do something remarkable. He tells Jesus to command him to walk on the water. Now, you've got to get this scene in your mind, because it's kind of amazing. The disciples, tired, exhausted, see, see what they think is a ghost-like figure. Somebody's clearly walking on the water. And Peter's first thought is to question said person on the water, who just is walking on the water, to prove that he's Jesus. I don't know about you, but if I saw a man walking on the water and told me to do something, I'd probably listen. Like, well, clearly you, you've done something well. You know? You're walking on water here. But even this, I think, is helpful. Look, look at this. How often do we look at the promises of Jesus, like Peter, and question them, even when we're in no position to question them? And then look what happens next. Jesus tells Peter to come. So Peter does. He steps out of the boat onto the raging waters and he begins to walk towards Jesus. And the imagery of this is amazing. But then look what the text says in verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink out, he cried, Lord, save me. Now here's a question for you. Where were Peter's eyes when he started to sink? They weren't on Jesus. In that moment, our text says he saw the wind, which is peculiar, but he saw it, and his eyes went to the storm around him. Looking at Jesus, walking towards Jesus, all of a sudden starts looking around. Where's his eyes go? They went to his need. I'm in the middle of a raging sea. They left Jesus. They started focusing on the needs around him. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, where are your eyes? Are they on Jesus? Are they on the storms around you? If we're to make it through the storms in our life and not buy into the false hope of anxiety, our eyes have to be on Jesus. 
if we're to place our hope in him and not in the false promise of our own provision, that has to be on Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's the only way we practically place our hope in him. It's the only way we don't run to our anxiety and hold on to that, expecting to somehow change the world we live in. Or run to our provision for the needs of the future, expecting ourselves to take care of it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I know know this sounds simple. There's nothing simple about this. Because everything in you, when something goes wrong, wants to go into fix-it mode. It wants to take care of the situation itself. But when the needs of the day are overwhelming and you find yourself beyond your strength and beyond your ability, which you will, at some point you reach the end of yourself and then you're, you're asked to go further. And in those moments, keep your eyes on Jesus. When the needs of tomorrow fill you with nothing but dread and you struggle to keep your mind from terror and despair, keep your eyes on Jesus. For when we keep our eyes on Jesus, though the storm may be raging and the winds may be blowing, you have a Savior that walks with you. Speaking of Jesus, it's important we remember that Jesus knew what it was like to be filled with fear and worry. He knew what it was like to walk through trial and storm and yet remain faithful to the end. Look with me in Matthew 26. We're keeping it in-house today. Matthew 26, verse 38. This is right at the end. Jesus is in the garden. Disciples are sleeping around him. They're passed out. This is what he says. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. This is Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, telling the disciples, hey, chill out with me. I'm a little scared. Stuff's going down. They fall asleep. He goes beyond them, falls on his face and prays, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Look at Jesus. The moments right before his betrayal, the Bible says he's deeply distressed and deeply grieved. Yeah, this is not your run-of-the-mill, everyday anxiety blown out of proportion. This is, I'm about to die, be separated from the Father for a bit. Nobody understands that. That's the anxiety he's dealing with. And yet, look at what he does. Look at what this distress does for him. It pushes him back to the Father. And he places his eyes on the Father. He cries out to the Father. He asks the Father, and he trusts the Father. And in doing so, he's made a way for all who trust in him to have hope. He's made a way for all who have faith in him to have eternal security. He's made a way for all who cry out to Jesus and call upon his name and believe him as the Son of God to not be put to shame. We serve a Savior who understands fear and worry, yet remain faithful. Okay, in conclusion, if you find yourself anxious this morning and you don't know Jesus, then your greatest need is to meet Jesus. No questions asked. No caveats given. You need to meet Jesus. Genuinely, that is the best decision that will ever be made in your life. Ever. And that doesn't mean the absence of fear and worry. It just means you get to walk through it with Jesus. But if you are anxious this morning and you know Jesus, which is many of you, and you know your greatest need has been met in him, you're now free to place your eyes on your hope in Christ. And the path is dark at times. No question. 
No question. But you don't have to walk it alone. You don't have to walk it alone. But let's say you're here and you find yourself in the season of anxiety and you've got nothing left. Brian, my tank is dry. Completely at the end of my strength. I was at the end of my strength months ago. Each day is harder than the one that came before it. And quite honestly, I don't know how I'm going to do it. If that's you, I've been there. I've been to that point where you look at the day and you're like, yep, this can't be happening today. And you look at the month and you're like, no, that can't be happening either. Know that for those in Christ, this is going to sting. The Lord is using that season to draw you to him. It's using that season to draw you deeper to him. And this is what he says. He comes at you saying this. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's the voice of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in reflection on this word in scripture, my prayer, Lord, is against the enemy to twist this, to use this, to make it seem as though hardship and hard times don't come to those who walk in you we know they do and we acknowledge our need before you we acknowledge our need for the day to be sustained by you we acknowledge our need for the future to be provided by you we acknowledge the need of our heart to be encouraged by you we acknowledge the need of our soul to be strengthened and garrisoned Lord for those in here who don't know you I I pray that the first step the, the first need the greatest need would be met They cry out to you as Savior, as King, as Lord. But for those of my brothers and sisters who are struggling here under the weight of an anxious heart and the weight of anxiety, my prayer again is that they would turn and cast their eyes on you, knowing that you are faithful, knowing that you are good, knowing that you are capable, knowing that you are able. Lord, meet us in our need. Meet us in this time of distress. And Lord, for those who are just completely at the end of the rope, completely done, over it, can't move any further, Jesus, carry us. Carry us. And bring us your joy that only you can bring in the midst of those seasons. Father, we thank you, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.